Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial and I'm Janice Richardson. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. My name is Bronwyn Winter and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, which is 8.55 on your AM dial. Today I'm speaking with Associate Professor Jill Storfer about ethical loneliness. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, as, as well as being an Associate Professor of Philosophy, you're also a Director of the concentration in peace, justice and human rights at Haverford. Um, Can you talk about your role in this department? This is a dream job for me. I was hired in 2009 to create a new interdisciplinary justice-themed concentration at at Haverford. Uh, Concentration is a program that can be added on to any major, and I designed the curriculum of the program to teach students about the history and philosophy and successes and failures of human rights and social justice movements to also help them understand ethical reasoning and factors affecting whether a good argument gets accepted by an audience or not, and also to facilitate interdisciplinary communication by gathering together a cohort of students who are interested in justice but invested in different disciplinary methodologies with the idea that when you have to learn to talk about your work to people who don't share your assumptions and approaches, it teaches you a lot about your own work uh, and also about teaching and learning. So as the director, I teach all or some of the core courses and advise students and do the unglamorous administrative work. So what was it that inspired you to study ethical loneliness? Well, a part of that came out of teaching. Uh, a number of years ago in a class that I teach called Forgiveness, Mourning, and Mercy in Law and Politics, I found myself faced with a room full of students who were so sure that forgiveness could only be a good thing, resentment could only be a bad thing, that I wanted to find a way to get them to understand that it matters what people are being asked to forgive, and also to ask whether they've been provided reasonable conditions where forgiveness would be possible. So sometimes this forgiveness is a gift for all involved and a, and a powerful way to move forward for survivors, but Other times it might be coerced or it might happen out of weakness when someone is so beat down that they can't demand justice. But on the other hand, resentment uh, has a reputation of only being negative, although sometimes resentment might be a sign that someone knows they were harmed and that those harms have not yet been adequately addressed. So I wanted to come up with a way of talking about what constitutes conditions where positive forward movement is possible. So I started reading testimony of many different kinds, from truth commissions and courts and international tribunals and archives of testimony and memoirs and oral histories, and I saw that the things said by survivors are often not fully aligned with the things that academics and other researchers say about the effects of institutions like courts and truth commissions. 
And then I encountered a book called At the Mind's Limits by a Holocaust survivor, Jean Amory. And in it, he wrote these words. This is a quote. The experience of persecution was, at the very bottom, that of an extreme loneliness. At stake for me today is the release from the abandonment that has persisted from that time until today. And that's the end of the quote. And that really struck me because he wrote it 20 years after he was released from Auschwitz. And the book is a collection of essays about why he didn't think that forgiveness was justified, and it helped me invent the term ethical loneliness. The title of your book is Ethical Loneliness. Can you tell the listener what you mean by ethical loneliness? Yeah, I, I chose the term to describe a double abandonment. So in the book I say that ethical loneliness is the experience of being abandoned by humanity, compounded by not being heard when you testify to what happened. So maybe like you're a survivor of genocide or of long-standing state oppression or of a history of sexual violence or any number of the other ways human beings have found to dehumanize and attempt to destroy other human beings. So it's bad enough if you've, if you've gone through that and survived, but then maybe you aren't given space to speak about it. Or, and this one's even trickier, and it's also one of the book's main points, you are given a space to speak, perhaps in a courtroom or a truth commission, and then you find that even the kind of well-intentioned people who you think are listening are actually failing to hear you for various reasons. What was the aim in your book? Well, I wanted to show how common these failures are and how um, all of us fail in this way part of the time. So, you know, maybe you're a lawyer and you only want to hear the legal facts of the case, but that means that you fail to listen to the parts of the story that might actually be more important to the people that have been harmed. Or you could be a commissioner on a truth commission and your job is to find out about gross human rights violations, so you only hear about that and it stops you from hearing about the other harms that might be equally devastating but harder to classify. Or maybe you're interviewing a Holocaust survivor and you have a personal need to hear a narrative of human resilience and that stops you from being able to hear the parts that might be about destruction or the parts of a person who didn't survive an experience. And in all these cases, not only are we as listeners robbed of what a full story would be, but we do an injustice by not actually letting ourselves hear the complexity of the story. So you add harm to an existing injury. And I wanted to show that that was a common error that any of us might make, even those of us who, mer- who might really want to be good listeners. So you could, call, you could call that the practical aim of the book. There are also more philosophical aims, which I, I could talk about if you want, but that, that, I think, is the practical aim of the book. Do you think that society is sort of recognising the more emotional side of things, such as uh, you mentioned before about, you know, having a legal trial, that they, now that they have impact statements provided by the survivors of victims of crime? Yeah, I think that victim impact statements are one way that courts have tried to remedy a, a kind of excessive proceduralism that is involved in law but I'm not sure that actually changes the way lawyers listen. The way, so part of what I'm trying to say is that there's certain, it's possible that in a courtroom there's certain types of stories that just can't be told, and that doesn't mean, it might mean that we need to change how courtrooms work, but it 
might also mean that we just need to recognize that law on its own isn't going to get certain things done. Who is the audience for this book? Well, I guess it would be anybody who cares about justice or about continental philosophy's relationship to ethics. For me, it's been really moving to hear. I actually have heard from people on social media and over email from lots of different disciplines or even outside of academia about how the book helped them in some way. I've heard from people who are doing like indigenous activism or Black Lives Matter or a Buddhist practice or oral history. It's been really kind of humbling and, and interesting to hear the different ways in which the book has struck different audiences. In your book, you talk about the limitations of the two models of reparation for past harms, criminal trials and truth commissions. Criminal trials can sometimes serve a purpose of bringing perpetrators to justice, but do they provide solace for the victims? I think it depends on the court and the victim. Finding a perpetrator guilty might help some victims or survivors, depending on which vocabulary you want. It might help some people feel that they've been heard and that justice has been done, and that matters. Courts also help gather facts, and they establish them according to rigorous standards of proof, and that creates an archive of harm that is harder for people to deny, and that matters. And some people might feel really vindicated by those outcomes, but others might feel that nothing substantive has been done to rebuild what was destroyed. So, again, I think it really depends on the court and the survivors. You've researched many different truth commissions internationally. Are there any models of the truth commissions that work better than others? I think it's probably not possible to answer this question in a useful way. And I say that because there can't be a freestanding model for a truth commission that would be appropriate in every situation. Every truth commission ends up being tailored to the conditions it faces. And part of that will be because it'll be dealing with different types of histories, but also it will be dealing with different types of constraints in the present moment. So sometimes just getting hidden stories out to the public will be the most important thing. Other times collecting evidence but not publishing names will be the goal. And it's going to matter what the, what the political conditions are and what types of compromises might be necessary and what the goals of the commission and the people it represents are. So every set of choices is going to be imperfect and not please everyone, but it is also going to have to depend on particular factors. Truth commissions have been held up as providing healing to victims and have made many perpetrators face up to their crimes. But you also see the limitations in combating ethical loneliness. Why is this? So I discuss a a number of instances from, for instance, the South African TRC in the book, where the purpose of the commission is encouraging a narrative of forgiveness, and that's sometimes at odds with, with being able to hear well what some people who testified wished to say. Perhaps they didn't want to forgive or were still angry. Well, there's a story about a woman who wanted to tell a complex story about a destruction of her world, and it gets reduced to a story about rape because there's an interest in the commission in establishing that rape was used as a crime against women in the struggle against apartheid. There's another story about a guy who wants to emphasize his bravery and the risks that he took for a political cause, 
and it gets converted into a story about his victimhood or his suffering. Um, and in both of those cases, I think it, it would have been possible to hear a more complex story than that, but when sometimes when people enter a conversation with a too firm idea about what the outcome will be, then that structures what they're able to hear. Or perhaps they do hear the complexity, but they have different goals, like establishing a, a list of harms rather than doing justice to wider social ramifications. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to... Associate Professor Jill Storfer about ethical loneliness. You don't only look at the culpability of the perpetrator, but the ways in which the wider society are implicated in crimes against humanity. Yeah, I think these stories I've been telling about hearing begin to make the point. So even those of us trained to listen and desiring to hear well might fail. Obviously, no one's ever going to be perfect at this. We're all human. But I think we all need to learn how to listen for our own failures of hearing or to check our presuppositions about what someone else's story will be. So that's one way in which we're implicated. Another way is in the stories that we tell ourselves. So we tend to think we can only be responsible for what we've done and intended. But that's like thinking that responsibility is the same thing as legal culpability. And if you think like that, then you can't be responsible for things like the fact that child soldiers exist or structural racism or climate change or refugees from wars or sufferers of poverty or homelessness or famine because you probably never did anything illegal to cause those things. But the way of life of most Westerners is implicated in a lot of misery. It relies on the manufacturer of misery, and it would be better if we were more honest about that so we could see our implication in the larger world and maybe have different views about what we're responsible for. So what I mean is on, is in some way really simple. Like, if you do believe that you're only responsible for what you've done and intended, but you also want the world to be more just than it is, all you need to do is take a few steps back from those two thoughts and see that they don't go together. You can't really have both. You can't logically want your duty to be limited to a purely legal responsibility while also harboring a desire for a justice that transcends uh, the current inequality of legal protection. You place great emphasis on hearing and listening. Can you explain what you mean by hearing and listening and why it's so important? I think I probably, I mean, a lot of the stories I've told already get at that, but I just, I think that we need to do a better job at recognizing that hearing means opening yourself up to what you don't already know. And if you approach the practice of doing it with too many presuppositions or decisions about what the outcome is going to be, then you won't hear things that might change your world for the better, or you might not hear things that will be really upsetting but important to know about the world. Does the response to hearing and listening have to be accompanied by structural change in order to heal ethical loneliness? Well, probably it does. I mean, I do think that learning to hear well makes a difference even when unjust structures remain in place. 
because part of the injustice of what I'm calling ethical loneliness is this failure of hearing. Each of us can fix that in ourselves, even if we're surrounded by corrupt or disappointing structures. And my sense is that if enough people change their idea of what it means to be responsible for building worlds, then that might end up having an impact on structures. So we might learn to recognize what structural violence is, or we might even figure out how to fix it, or how to refuse to tolerate it. We might figure out how to design the best truth commission for a particular post-conflict situation. We might learn how to handle rape as a war crime without re-victimizing its survivors. Or, and I think this is a big one, we might learn to focus on prevention rather than, than continually having a world where we need to build all of these reactive institutions to deal with how horrible human beings can sometimes be to each other. So I guess the answer to this is, it would be great if structural change happened, but it's possible that changing the stories we tell ourselves about responsibility would come first and then push the structural change around uh, along. Well, do you think that educational institutions have a responsibility to teach, well, children especially, how to, how to hear and listen? And do you think that would make an improvement starting off at a young age in, in learning how to do that rather than adults trying to grasp the concepts? Yeah, I, I, I do think that teaching children how to hear stories from people from communities that are different from theirs would be a great way. I think even learning about other cultures and language learning can help with this. In terms of how to hear someone testify to grave harm, I think that has to wait till later in life. You know, there's all kinds of things. There's reasons why we shield children from some of what's the most ugly about the world. So maybe later, high school or college, that's when... You can start to challenge people, people who might have been fortunate enough to not have lived through terrible things, challenge them to see how prevalent these types of injustices can be and what it means to kind of bring your skills uh, uh, at hearing towards hearing stories that, might, that you might wish weren't true. Do you think there's any other ways that we can actually educate people about ethical hearing and listening? I think, well, if we're talking about adults, and I think you're right that sometimes it's hard to get adults to change their habits, but I think one thing everybody's capable of doing is becoming more aware of the stories we tell ourselves about who we are as selves. I think there's all kinds of things that can change there. So it's a, it's a, it's a revolution that can happen in a tiny space where you stop believing that autonomy is the main thing that that defines you, or that uh, in a simple way, so that autonomy is always attached to what what is the context in which your autonomy is meaningful. It always means that you're surrounded by people who have respected you as a human being, so that if we think autonomy is a value, then it's attached to the idea that people cared enough to build a community where other people's autonomy and dignity was respected. It's not just something you're born with. I think learning to tell yourself a more complicated story about your own independence as a being or how you came to have the values you have, those are ways in which we can kind of make changes that begin with the self and then spiral outwards. So I think with the question I asked you, what was your aim in the book, did you want to speak about the philosophy behind that? 
Yeah, actually, that's related to my the, what I was just saying about changing the stories that we tell ourselves. So philosophically, I wanted to start to take apart this idea of subjectivity that rests a bit too easily with autonomy, because, of course, human autonomy and independence matters. It's one way that we respect each other. But I think sometimes we can take that too far and forget that it's not an essence of us. So, like I said, if I'm a sovereign being, it's because I live in a place where others have recognized that and valued it and done things to preserve it as a value. But the heart of, in the heart of human experience, we're also at the mercy of others as much as we are independent creatures. And I'd like there to be more balance in how we tell ourselves stories about how we came to be who we are. So if we're lucky, much of the conditions that were handed to us have been supportive, but not everybody's lucky. And I make this, to make this argument, I call on a number of philosophers. So Emmanuel Levinas, his main message is that even, even though you're so fragile that other people can destroy you, the whole world's justice hangs on your response to that. And then, you know, Nietzsche, one of Nietzsche's main points is, if you want to love life, you have to embrace everything that has ever happened to you, no matter how good or bad it was, and will to live it again. And that itself requires a certain kind of passivity. And then Jean-Amarie's main point is that time on its own is never going to fix a harm imposed on you by violence and the, the indifference of other people. And those are three very different thinkers, but what they have in common is that each of them call on us to do something very difficult while also reminding us that we are passive in the face of some very powerful forces. So every bit of independence that we have is also dependent on others. And if we remember that, it might change the way that we relate with other people. It's a very interesting topic. Do you have any future study plans? Yes. I'm actually working on a book right now that's about the interrelation between law and time. I have this idea that there are some cases, uh, and I can mention a couple of them, that if we thought if we thought about law differently, it might help us understand something strange about time that's happening in the case. Or if we thought about time differently, it might help us see a legal problem differently. One way that I'm thinking about this is in the way that North American courts hear indigenous land claims. I know this is also a thing in Australia. Because in, in North America, we have started to allow oral history into courts but then the way it gets heard is as if it were the same as Western history, and it's not. It's a different way of telling a story about time. And I'm interested in what it would take in order for that to get a fair hearing. Another thing I'm interested in for, for the next project is the way that international law judges child soldiers. This is also about time because it tends, the way that it has gone so far, it tends to be a really kind of reductive view about how aging happens, so the idea that if anything that people do before the age of 18, they're not fully responsible for, but after 18, they are. But what if someone was abducted at the age of 10 and kind of violently brought into a life of crime? What, when is the magic moment when they became responsible for their actions? I feel like there's all kinds of ways in which we could be much more sophisticated in thinking about what the relationship between time passing and moral responsibility is. So, yeah, I have a sense that some of these questions about law and time will hang together into one book, but I've just started working on it. 
Mm, yeah, no, that's a really interesting concept because, well, you know that people sort of mature at different ages and mm-hmm. it's almost like it'd be better to give people a sort of a development test to see how far developed they are, especially with their ethics, if they're underage and going on to trial. Yeah, um, some cultures judge maturity not by a number, but by, you know, indicators of of what people's capacities are. And some cultures judge the maturity happens at a different age than 18. So it's, it's an interesting set of questions. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Jill Storfer about ethical loneliness. That's the end of the program today. Hope you've been given plenty of food for thought. And thank you very much for listening.